You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. With me on Max's Island today, I've got Susie Aries. Susie, welcome to the island. Hello, it's lovely to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Susie, you don't sound like you're from these parts. Where do we find you today? I'm certainly not. Now I'm all the way in the um, actually sunny UK um, at the moment. Well, Susie, on the island, it's always sunny. And that gives us a great opportunity to relax with guests and gives them the opportunity to talk about that time in their life where they might have done something for themselves, where they might have turned their back on what they were doing before and changed careers, or the world threw them a bit of a curveball and something happened that they needed to adjust and it had a massive impact. Have you got a time in your life where that happened to you? I certainly do. There's the most poignant moment of my life, I think, comes to mind when I was um, diagnosed with a very rare form of ovarian cancer, um, which was back in 2017. I was only 25 years old. So that must have come as a shock, someone so young. How did you find out that you had it? You know, what were the symptoms? So in hindsight, I, I did have all of the symptoms that there are. I just didn't know what the symptoms were at the time so I was I was bloated I thought my tummy felt a bit funny I'd lost my appetite which was really weird for me because I usually love food (laughs) I had tummy pain and I was up and down to the toilet five six times in the night which is just really bizarre because I'm not not quite yet a grandma (laughs) (laughs) um so you know it was all of those things that were there I just didn't put I just didn't put them all together to think they were an actual diagnosis of anything. What made you go to the health professionals? What made you pursue it to to find out what it was? So I was working, I was working somewhere. It was an office job at the time. And I usually I'm I'm a, someone that will get up early. I'll go to the gym before work. But at this this time I was, you know, struggling to even stand up on the tube on my commute in. And I got to work and they had their usual weekly fire drill where you have to walk down about three, four flights of stairs and then back up three, four flights of stairs afterwards. And I just couldn't walk up the stairs. I was 
I was completely exhausted and I just did not know my body just wouldn't do it and so my manager said to me gosh you look white as a sheet please go home and and rest up and I think that was my trigger point to actually go back to my family home at the time I was living living in in a house share in London so it was my trigger to go home and the plan was to get just some TLC from my mum, but my mum saw me and went, we are going to the GP. So, <laughs> so Good old mum. Good old mum. So how long was it before you got your diagnosis and what was the immediate impact? So we went to the GP and usually with the GP, they they that they'll kind of say, oh, okay, you look a bit dodgy. I'll send you for some blood tests and then you have to wait a couple of weeks to see a phlebotomist or something like that. But I think this particular lady that I saw really took me seriously. I think she understood the symptoms I was telling her. Didn't immediately frighten me with 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 what her thoughts could be, but she took my bloods there and then for me, said, come back tomorrow for the results. Um, and it was at that point there were a few little things that didn't look quite right in in the blood results and so I went for an ultrasound that same week that came out a bit funny they couldn't see one of my ovaries they said there was it was just darkness they couldn't see it so there was obviously something there I think another week passed and um, it felt like an eternity <laughs> um, another week passed and I had an MRI scan which then showed that there was quite a large mass on on my left ovary. And I think it was altogether, it was about a month from when I went to the GP and until I went into surgery, where they they cut out this huge mass as well as my left my left ovary and fallopian tube. And then another six weeks went past before they were able to actually figure out what the cancer was. And all of that time, I wasn't calling it cancer, I was calling it a, a mass I had a, had a mass or or I had cancer past tense but I didn't but I don't have it anymore but I think the impact the real impact was when they told me that it had actually spread to my lymph nodes and that was when I went oh gosh okay I I have cancer I I am a cancer patient it was that was a lot a lot to deal with so that period of time we can all imagine how emotionally stressful it would have been waiting those weeks to get the final confirmation having the treatment but then admitting to yourself the reality of the situation but to go along with the psychological pressures physically you must have been declining at the same time yes I mean I it 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 never got any worse than than before I saw the GP that was probably the worst point I was at where I just I couldn't I couldn't stand the sight of certain foods um I was just so exhausted I I was I actually think I remember just just before the diagnosis at Christmas I was napping um on Christmas day when usually I'd be making cocktails um you know so it was it wasn't normal for me at all so I think the, the the difference is though once I had that tumor removed, there was the the surgery to recover from. That was a, a few weeks of, of just very minimal minimal things. But after that, I actually felt so much better. But it was starting treatment that was then, I guess, the, the decline of a lot of things. I guess, yeah. Did, what chemo was not nice at all. Before you got the diagnosis and and had the surgery. And you mentioned you were working at the time in an office job. What other things were you doing in your life that perhaps now were something that you couldn't do or 
was it something that you changed your thoughts about the values of those activities? So I was doing, um, I, I was living the life of an actor, I would say, which involved mainly side jobs, so working in, in said office, um, but also um, scrambling to get those auditions when I possibly could, hoping hoping to get the role. And I, I, did, I did a good few things while I was an actor. I worked on cruise ships. I did a couple of shows in town, some touring shows and things. But with the diagnosis, obviously I had to put all of that on hold. I had to explain to my agent that, I was out of action for a while, but I'd be back. I'd, I'd be back with bells on at some point. And then starting chemo, the biggest thing for me, the biggest impact and, and something that I was struggling to deal with was losing my hair. And because that is, is part of a woman's identity there. It was part of anyone's identity, I guess. Um, perhaps not yours. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, it's, it was a massive, massive thing. And I just thought, gosh, how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to go to auditions with, with without any hair? I'm going to have to buy a wig and I'm going to have to do this, that and the other. And But what I did do before I lost my hair was I cut it short. I cut it into a kind of a pixie cut, which is something I've never never done before and that was a completely new look for me um, and what I did with the rest of it because it was quite long at the time I donated it to the Little Princess Trust and it was just something positive that I wanted to get out of such a negative situation it, that was very important for me and I think I, ma- I managed to just about do that throughout the whole of this horrible experience that I had was try and turn horrible things into into positive things but while I had no hair, I actually did make quite a big decision at one point to go to an audition without any hair, without any wig. Um, I just put on, I put on some makeup, I put on some dangly earrings, and I just made that choice to go to an audition without any hair. And in in a way, it was very, it felt very fulfilling to do that because I thought, hey, I am, I'm taking control of the situation, and I am. I'm 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 going and I'm making the most of it but I think at the same time I don't know whether I was thinking that they'd give me the job because I look different I don't know but um sadly I didn't get a recall for that audition but it was that was a poignant moment as well I remember posting something on Facebook about how liberating it felt um to have done that so but it did make definitely did make acting very, very tricky going through all this to be honest it probably makes sense why you may not have been given that job what did the people that you were auditioning to what did they say to you were they just polite and and you know sort of humored you or were they genuinely impressed with what you you were doing well interestingly they they didn't say a thing they didn't comment they just conducted the audition as as if i looked or were an, a normal healthy person and to and to be fair I think at that point I, I I was full of beans I was full of energy um I'd I think I'd either I was either nearly finished chemo or I'd just finished chemo I think and I was getting my energy back and I was so excited about doing this and and breaking down this barrier and so that they didn't they didn't do anything really I thought I did quite a good audition but it was for an incredibly difficult role in a show so I'm not I'm not I, I think even had I had hair I don't I don't think it was the hair that stopped me getting the role I think it was probably my 
not uh, in, inability I'll give myself some credit probably there were probably other people better than me for the role I'd say did you continue to go to auditions and pursue your your, your career and, and you do sing as well were you singing at the same at the same time yeah, so um, that it was actually a, a, a role for a musical theatre production that I went for at that point. And yes, I, I did carry on auditioning as much as I possibly could throughout the entire time. And I, I did, there was a moment for about 18 months where I was on a drugs trial, which really helped to allow me to have a normal life, really. I, I was um, able to exercise again. I was going to auditions. I was living away from home. I wasn't ill as such. I felt very normal, but the drugs trial ended up stopping working I had to go through all these various different other treatments um one of which was actually radiotherapy which um caused me to sadly lose my fertility um which was heartbreaking at the time but I've I guess I've I've worked through it and I now know there are other ways of having children and so it have hope for um for for the future of still being able to have a family so it's nice but um the poignant moment where I decided that I had I had to stop being an actor, I think, was when I actually developed a bowel obstruction. It was around about 2020, um, actually, when the when the pandemic hit in the UK and, and everything was locked down. I was hospitalised because I was unable to eat anything without it coming back up again. Um, and the bowel obstruction was due to all the scar tissue that had formed from radiotherapy, from surgeries and, and all sorts of things. And so I had to be hospitalised for about four weeks. I'd lost probably near enough 12 kilos um I I was very very underweight um very very ill and I I couldn't do it I was I was in hospital and I was I had a nose I had a nasogastric tube down my throat and I was emailing my agent saying I'm I think I'll be out soon so yeah yeah so I'll I'll try and go to that audition next week and it was it was just stupid. I was looking at myself. I even did an audition remotely in a hospital waiting room. You know, it was it was it, it got to desperation points, and I it was just this is not this is this is detrimental, and it was a shame because I love it and I do still do things that get my bug out. I guess is what I call it. I sing with a vintage trio called the London Bells, and I love it when I sing with them. And I do a, a, a charity gig every year with my godfather, who plays the guitar and sings with me. And so it's just that those small things that I do are enough to kind of get that performer out of me. But at that point, I got to a point in learning sign language, British sign language, that would allow me to actually once I was out of hospital, get a job working in the deaf community as a communication support worker. And, and now I'm a, um, a trainee sign language interpreter. So it's, it's all, everything, everything happens for a reason, I think, be it mean sometimes, but I think it's, it's actually worked out really well for me. What made you choose sign language and being an interpreter? So I actually have a cousin that lives in Australia who I think was possibly on your podcast already, who has a mum and dad that are deaf. And I came and visited Australia maybe about eight years ago. And I stayed uh, and I stayed with, with Tara's dad. And it was the, the the communication barrier frustrated me so much. I mean, he's fantastic and he can I don't I don't know how he can possibly lip read as well as he does. It's it's just mind blowing. But I just thought over the two or three weeks that I stayed with him, I started learning a little bit of Auslan, which is similar to BSL. And I already knew how to spell, which is the same as in BSL as well. 
And over over that period, we learned how to communicate with each other, even if it was through a bit of gesture, a few basic signs. And and it got to the point where I thought, gosh, this is fulfilling to be able to communicate with this person that wouldn't otherwise be able to communicate. And so that was probably the big one for me. And and actually, it was that was pre cancer. Um, have, having having met up with Peter and so I, I hadn't decided at that point that I was going to be a sign language interpreter but I decided that it was something I was going to pursue alongside my acting and perhaps I could do it at the same time as acting I could I could do a show in the evening and then I could earn money not in a side job not in an office job but perhaps I could go out and do interpreter bookings at, at, at some point little did I know how long it was going to take um, in the UK to qualify as an interpreter but because I had learned it alongside the acting and then carried on actually alongside being sick and even through my hospitalization we were um, on to doing remote training sessions for my level three which was then what the, the qualification of my level three BSL allowed me to become a, a communication support worker and then from there I just carried on learning because I just I'd got the bug at that point. <laughs> and did you find that you're acting experience helped you know when you're acting you're communicating with your audience you're trying to get connection obviously as uh, an interpreter for, for deaf and hard of hearing people you're also trying to connect with audience and sharing experiences with them so did you find that that acting experience was helpful I actually think it is because it's made me I think it's made me have less inhibitions than some interpreters because there's a lot of facial expressions and strange kind of noises and strange things that you have to do with your face that I think some people that who haven't had acting training or that do have those inhibitions do struggle to do and to put into the language but for BSL I don't know whether it's the same in Auslan but this facial expression side of things is actually part of the linguistics of the language so it's a, it's an integral part to, to feel comfortable with and just be able to do and and so I think that probably did help me learn the language and be comfortable with the language and maybe try things perhaps they, they're not right but it's not something that you'd be ridiculed about by the deaf community because all they want is is for people to try and I think maybe because I was trying I, I feel very very accepted by the deaf community regardless of whether I have too too many facial expressions or not but I think it's also allowed me to consider the idea of becoming a performance interpreter as well perhaps for musicals um if a, if a deaf if there's a deaf audience for a musical I could um, interpret it at the side recently I went to a music festival where there was an interpreting team and I shadowed them and I watched them and they were interpreting the music and it was just beautiful and it's made me think that there is a way for me to go full circle here perhaps not be an actor and, and not be the, the on center stage but to be that interpreter that is center stage for the deaf audience so it's it seems quite a nice I don't know like how the journey could go full circle it seems it seems very appropriate. <laughs> Susie, you mentioned that the medical diagnosis and the period of time of surgery, recovery, chemo, radiotherapy, the impact on your life physically was obvious and potentially you would have had many mental pressures at that time, ups and downs, as you've already experienced, that you sometimes tried to push through it. Has that changed the things that you do and the way you look at certain things? And also, what have you done additionally to feel like you can move on from those challenges so as I said previously I 
have always tried to look at things in a positive way a glass half full kind of way I think it's just something that maybe I've always had but it's something that I really had to back up and I had to go with it in a very strong way when I was diagnosed is that positive outlook on things because I honestly think it being positive through all of the treatment through fighting this horrible disease has changed my body chemistry there's never going to be a way that you can you can prove that ever but I think not it not just mentally helps but I think it does physically help as well and through everything all the different treatments I think having that positive outlook has not just helped me but I think it's also helped my family and friends around me as well because they're my support network and they've what's kept me go going but looking at it from their perspective it Gosh, it's hard because I've had I've had other friends that that have had cancer as well, and now that I'm well, I'm I I'm now able to look at it from the other side and go, oh, it's like it's heartbreaking to have absolutely no control, no ability to change anything. With, with my dad, for example, my dad has always been the person that fixes things. He is he is the the fixer. I don't know whether you're the same, but he he fixes things. It's what what a dad does, and with this, he wasn't able to fix it. So it's that side of it. And I'm 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 now learning what the people that were supporting me went through while I was going through it. And I think that positive outlook really, really did help me get through altogether, really, and think what I what I could possibly do in the future and how I could carry on. I think in terms of what I'm doing now. I think I'm just living I'm living life as much as I possibly can and having the fullest life I possibly can. I'm I'm working and I'm and I'm absolutely loving my my new line of work. I think I've found an, a passion that I never knew that I had. I, I always thought that theatre and performing was the only love of my life, but I think interpreting is I found a new love and I found a new dream and I want to follow that as well as finding that work-life balance, meeting people, going to places and experiencing different things, doing things that scare me, trying to live life as fully as I possibly can. Because I think one of the big things that I did learn is that life is or can be perhaps not for me anymore, but it, it can be incredibly short. And with that, you want to pack in as much as you possibly can, um, when you pass on to the next life or whatever to kind of look back and go huh yeah that was a good one that was a good one so yeah I think that's that's kind of what what I'm trying to do. (laughs) Susie thanks for being on the island your half glass full approach to life is infectious your projection of your enthusiastic approach to life is really clear I think you will continue to grow and live that exceptional life Thank you so much for sharing your story and being on the island today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so nice. We spoke on the bus on the way home from work. He was lost in the details of life. Each day was a blur. Oh, work and no play and how. How it had turned out this way He told me his plan A short-term escape Five weeks on the Bibbulmun track Go it alone No one to blame If he finished Or fell by the way He 
every sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone, no emails or phone, and nothing. 